The wisdom of experts can change your life. As a co-chair at the University of Texas, you've attained this elite status from growing and evolving over the course of your coaching career. In our Learning from Experts podcast, exclusively for the head coaches here at the University of Texas, we're going to accelerate that process. You'll hear from world-class coaches, sports psychologists, and successful people. And occasionally, it's the wisdom that impacts other areas of your life, like your health or your marriage. But here's something really important to appreciate. Timing. Hearing something at exactly the right time makes all the difference. Sometimes it's repetition. Hearing a concept multiple times until it resonates with you. So buckle up. This week's Learning from the Experts is about to begin. Hey coaches, John Mitchell here. Hey, I hope you're doing well. So this week, we're going to hear from the legendary basketball coach, Bobby Knight. And the interview is done by Joe Buck, who truly does a great job in prying out pearls of wisdom from Coach Knight. Listen for how the will to win, the will to win is the most important thing in coaching and what he means by that. Also listen for where Coach Knight talks about most people do have the will to win, but don't have the will to prepare. Boy, I bet you've seen that, right? And listen for how he made his players always be reading a book. And if he didn't like the book they were reading, (laughs) he would give them a better book. And here's the essence of what you'll learn today. Winning is a state of mind. And you can influence your player's desire to win and disgust for losing by talking about it. So with that said, hey, let's get rolling and listen to this fabulous interview of Bobby Knight. And remember, as a coach here at the University of Texas, hey, you're living the dream. Few coaches in college sports history have generated more victories and headlines than my guest tonight. From his humble beginnings in Orville, Ohio, Robert Montgomery Knight became the first coach in Division I basketball to reach 900 wins and the first to win the NCAA title as both a player and coach. He guided the Indiana Hoosiers to three national championships. His 1976 team remains the last to have an undefeated season. But before he was inducted into basketball's Hall of Fame, did you know he was kicked off his high school basketball team, hosted his own TV show for almost 30 years, and was the last basketball coach to win Olympic gold with collegiate players? Tonight, we'll learn what makes this undeniable icon who he is, a man who once said, most people have the will to win, few have the will to prepare to win. Please welcome the general, Coach Bob Knight. Thank you. 
Thank you. You are a physically intimidating son of a bitch. You know that? Well, I've tried to be. Okay. It's worked for it you. It has. Yes, it has. Uh, there's so many different ways to start an interview like this, but I, I feel like we need to start at the beginning. Being born in Ohio in 1940, Massillon, Ohio, but really the Paul story. Paul Brown's hometown. Paul Brown's hometown. Paul Brown is one of my all-time favorite coaches. And then uh, to Orville you went, where life began as an only child, and I, I feel like you were in a household surrounded by a lot of love. Am I right? Well, I had a grandmother that lived with us that was just smarter than everything. And I had a uh, mother that was smarter than my grandmother was. <laughs> so I had two really smart ladies. And my dad and I spent 18 years fighting those two ladies about every day <laughs> about something. But it was, uh, I look back on it and, and uh, I couldn't have uh, had a better uh, opportunity as a kid uh, because of my parents and and uh, I remember my mom uh, was a school teacher and was your school teacher second, in second grade. grade yep uh, after about somewhere in about the second day of the third week I said something that irritated her in the classroom sitting about the fourth row back in the fifth seat or something like that before I knew it she this is my mother now before I knew it, she had gripped me by the back of my throat, jerked me up in front of the whole classroom, made me bend over and hit me on the ass four times with a paddle. <laughs> now that's my loving mother right there. <laughs> right. But for those of you in today's world, back in the day, I mean, I went to high school in the 80s. We got knocked around back, a, back then. Not but, by but, your mother, though. No, not <laughs> by my mom. No, no, you got me on that. And your dad, Pat, was a guy who just worked tireless hours on the railroad. Worked uh, on the, the Wheeling and Lake Erie and the Baltimore and Ohio, and, and I would go out with him in January and, and we'd make sure no one had broken into the locks on the freight cars. And I mean, that was cold. And, and uh, my dad was about, no, oh, 5'11", maybe a little taller than that, maybe about the same, about 190. And uh, very strong and very tough my dad was very tough well tough in the sense that he was a strong tough guy or tough with regard to no, you no he was strong tough guy he'd, he'd get out in cold weather and he would do things that uh weren't necessarily uh things he had to do but he was working for the railroad and and he did things i went with him on some trips when i thought we were going to freeze to death. My mom did one thing. It was the only time I ever wanted to talk back to her, but I was afraid to. And, and uh, I was about nine years old. And it was the first time uh, that uh, I was going out to play Little League Baseball. And so I was walking out the door and I heard my mother say, now, Bob, you got to remember, somebody has to lose. And I said, well, it sure as hell doesn't have to be me, Mom. <laughs> I didn't say it very loud. I mean, I didn't kind of whispered that, but uh, that was my mother from then until eternity. One thing your mom gave you, I, she gave you a lot, but what a gift to give you the love of reading that she gave you. 
that that is is something that has served you to this day your love of history your well, yeah it, it didn't start out as a love of reading i was handled a book or handed a book and when i had answered every question that she asked me after having told her that i read that book then I could go play ball or something. You know, it wasn't easy. So it was carrot and the stick but, kind of a thing. Uh, but, well, it, it uh, but, yeah, my mom was great with that. And, and uh, as you said, I, uh, I've always, always encouraged. In fact, when I was coaching, uh, I told our players when we went on the road that they all had to take a book. And I said, I don't care what it is that you read, but you read a book. And if I don't like the book, I'll take it away from me and you can get another book. <laughs> but I wanted them to read and, and I wanted them to, because uh, I cherish uh, the fact that, that I didn't just learn to read because my mom was a school teacher. I learned to read because she demanded that I read. And so uh, being interested in sports, I got to read about Joe DiMaggio or Ted Williams or Babe Ruth or Otto Graham or Lombardi. And I read everything I could about Paul Brown. And, and so I, I just felt always that I would appreciate uh, uh, what my mom did relative to my being involved with reading. And, and uh, the town that we lived in, uh, Orville, uh, Ohio, for how many of you folks buy Smucker's Preserves? You know, most everybody does. And, and uh, that's where Orville is. That's really where you learned the small town American values. I mean, that's that's who you are. I think of Bob Knight. I think of of kind of that value system that you carried with you. You know, you carry with you to this day. It all started in Orville. We had a we had a man there uh, who was a beautician, and uh, he started Little League Baseball. His name was Frank Miser. When I thought about opportunities to do something, I always looked back upon all the time he took to help us play Little League Baseball, to have batting practice or infield practice, and he took all that time for years and years. And I always was happy when we did well because he, uh, he enjoyed winning too. Your first basketball lesson came in sixth grade. Um, I'm wondering <laughs> how, how you got involved in basketball. The Seems like a simple who, question. But. There were two guys, one still alive and one passed away not long ago. One's name was Knight, and not related, but Knight. His name was Dave Knight. He was like a second father to me. And he was coaching the junior high school team when I was in the sixth grade. And uh, you don't play until you're in the seventh grade. But I, he put me on the junior high school team when I was a sixth grader. Why? Because you were that interested or because you were that good? No, I was getting to the point where I could play a little bit. And, and uh, I was taller than most kids were at that age. And, and he knew that I really liked the game. I, he had a bucket up on his garage. And I spent all the time in his driveway shooting. I read where when you were 16 years old in class, they told you to write an autobiography. And part of that autobiography was that you wanted to coach. That, that seems like an odd piece for somebody who's 16, right? I mean, wouldn't you think, play, I want to do, and then obviously playing is we're going to get into that. It was a big well, part of it. In that era, you know, I was a good athlete, a good player in, in all three of those sports, and, and as so far as high school sports went. I really enjoyed all of that, but 
I, I also think that uh, uh, I was smart enough to figure out that there are a lot of guys that play these sports better than I do. So I coached the fifth or sixth grade basketball team in Orville on Saturday morning. So that was the first coaching that I ever did, and I kind of got a kick out of it. I liked it. And as we went along, you know, I, I hoped that I could become, I'd love to have played in the, uh, in the NBA or played in the American League or something, but I, I got to a point where, you know, I say to myself, well, I really, really like sports. So what is there for me to be a part of the sports world? And it had to be coaching. You go to Ohio State, and you're part of a freshman class that is all world. You know, I played as a backup player and played quite a bit here and there. But uh, I'm playing with Lucas and Havlicek oh. and, and, and guys that are going to really be NBA players. We, everybody was at least around Columbus, was excited for your sophomore season with that team, those Havlicek, Lucas, you guys that now couldn't play as freshmen could play, and you end up in the national championship. Let's take a look. At the Car Palace in San Francisco, the NCAA Basketball Championship Final. In the dark suits, Ohio State scores on the favorite defending title holders, the Golden Bears of California. The Buckeyes are probably the greatest team ever to come out of the Big Ten. A hook shot by six foot eight Jerry Lucas. A long hook by Joe Roberts. Enough for a 75 to 55 runaway victory. His team hoists Big Lucas up to the basket to cut away the net. Cherished souvenir for the jubilant Buckeyes. We turned around uh, and the next two years, we're playing for the championship against Cincinnati and they beat us both times. And, and, and I kept that film forever. And, and we had a really, really good team, but somebody beat us both times. And I can't tell you how much I studied those two games when we got beat. Instead of being, you know, antagonistic towards Cincinnati, who beat us fair and square twice, um, I went down and watched Cincinnati practice. What did, what did you learn from those two losses? Anything specific you can put your, your finger on? I feel like the losses hang with you more than the championship when you were a sophomore. Well, it, it wasn't like uh, when Cincinnati beat us those two times. It, it wasn't like, uh, well, Cincinnati was lucky, you know, or we played poorly. And, and I think too many times you use those things for excuses. And I think back then, uh, I was able to say, you know, they were just better than we were. They beat us twice because they were better than we were. So we've got to become better. You, you like coaching better than playing. I, I think so. I, I think I coach better than I played. And, and, uh, but I, I just, I like the game. Let's put it that way. You're talking to Coach Taylor about your future. And in this great stroke of timing, luck, divine intervention, whatever it is, the coach from Army, from West Point, overhears this conversation, and you end up going to West Point, right? Well, th this was just uh, one in a million. I, uh, we're, we're at the NCAA finals, and Coach Taylor introduced me to him. His name was George Hunter. And he was the basketball coach at West Point. 
And uh, Mr. Hunter uh, asked Coach Taylor, he said, what is this boy interested in doing? And Coach Taylor said, well, he's thinking about going to graduate school. That's what we were talking about. And uh, Mr. Hunter said, well, if he's ever in the Army, uh, you call me and I'll bring him to West Point and he can coach our freshman team. And other than having uh, met my wife, Karen, I think that's probably the most important thing that ever happened to me when he made that statement. You end up at West Point. You enlist in the Army. You're the assistant coach. You have two really good years. That coach, the head coach, gets offers. He ends up at Miami of Ohio. And you become head coach, the youngest in the history of college basketball at that point at the age of 24. I mean, you're 24 years old, head coach at Army, at West Point. Do you feel like, A, you're ready? Do you feel like you've, you're, you'll figure it out well, as you, you know, go? I was probably like every young guy. I probably thought I was smarter than I was. And, and, Did you have and, a philosophy? Like, what, what was Bob yeah, Knight's I, well, head coaching I, spent, I, I will say this. Nobody studied the game of basketball more than I did. And, and I was able to, to have access to Pete Newell, who in that era was the best coach ever. And, and, uh, and so I spent a lot of time with him. And then there's a guy named Harold Andreas, who was a great coach at Calga Falls. And so I had an opportunity uh, to be around a lot of really good basketball people. I never, never missed a time when I could go see Joe Lapchick or Claire B. And they are two of the all-time great coaches in history. So, so and, and it's funny because at that time when you're at, at Army at West Point, there's an assistant coach on the football team that you bring over to help you with the basketball team by the name of Bill Parcells. That was not my easiest job, helping Parcells play basketball. How <laughs> crazy is that, though? I mean, these are two Hall of Famers who are at West Point and you, you saw something in him, I assume, that, that you liked, that you wanted him a part of your program? I, I thought that uh, there was no way. Uh, Parcells and I really studied it. He studied basketball, I studied football. And we talked about it and talked about it and spent an awful lot of days and nights. And I was Could really, he have been a good basketball coach? He thought he would be. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind. Could you have been a great football coach? I think so. And, and I, I think that the, the, the most important thing in coaching uh, uh, is the will to win. It's the absolute most important thing there is. And if, you have, if winning is really important to you, then you're going to figure out how to win. And, and, and there are a lot of coaches that are just happy to have a good salary. Uh, but I never, you know, I'd have played for nothing. I want to bring up the name Mike Krzyzewski. You had him at West Point. But I would imagine what you told Mike Krzyzewski is something you told other players as the years went on. When he got to West Point, you told him, under no circumstances are you to shoot. Uh, I've always had a lot of respect uh, for a kid in those circumstances. Now, we... We were good, but we did not need him as a shooter. And, and what we needed was just a tough kid that could guard a guard on the other team, and a good passer, and, and, he, and this team was good. All the time that, that uh, he played, we were good. And, and, 
we beat an awful lot of people, but it was because of how good and how tough these kids were. And, and, uh, and I mean, he, is that hard to tell somebody? Hey, no, it wasn't because I, I wanted to win. You know, I, hey, I wasn't patting anybody on the back. I wanted to win. There, there's a side to you. Bob Knight is known as this tough, hard-nosed head coach. But there is a side to you. I know enough people in your life, friends of yours, who have told me there's a side to Bob that not everybody gets to see. Mike Krzyzewski got to see that side of you when he lost his father in 1969. You guys were on a great run at the end of the season. You're going into a, a weekend where you got to win the final two games. He goes home to Chicago, and you follow him there to be with not just Mike, but be with his mom who had just lost her husband. You wanted to be there with your young player. Well, I think that's a coach's responsibility. I, I, I hope that, that uh, when it was necessary to help a kid deal with a problem, I hope that I never neglected helping that kid. I, I hope that that was, uh, I'm expecting everything from that kid as a player, you know, and if I'm not getting everything, he's going to know about it. But in turn, that kid should be able to expect everything from me as a coach that will be of benefit to him. And so that was my coaching philosophy. Uh, the kid should be able to demand of me what I demand of them. You leave Army, you leave West Point, you go to Indiana, and you basically in the parking lot do the deal. And, and, and what was your promise to Indiana when you went there with regard to how you were going to run your program? Well, there were two things that, that happened there uh, when, when I went there. One was the president was a guy named John Ryan. And there's never been a better college president. And the athletic director was a guy named Bill Orwick, who had played and, and, and coached at, uh, at Michigan. And there had never been a better athletic director than he was. And so uh, I, I went in right away with, with two people that I really liked. Indiana had, had a little bit of a, of a uh, history of, of breaking a lot of rules in recruiting before I got there. And uh, I remember talking it over with, with Bill. And, and I said, now, wherever I coach, the rules are going to be important. And I think that's what he wanted, too. And so that's how I got started with, with both of them. The rules and your kids going to class. I, I went to Indiana University. So I guess I should have started with that uh, in the interview. But I know that in big lecture halls, the only attendance that was taken in classes that I was in were your players. Yeah, they're scared to death. They're damn right. You know, they they didn't wanna they didn't wanna face me having cut class. I know you're a goal maker. What were your goals going into your start there at Indiana? Well, I'm not sure there was anybody in the state of Indiana uh, before I went there that could play defense. <laughs> I don't think there's a person in Indiana that could play defense. They'd ever put on the red and white. That, that, could, could, uh, that could have even spelled the word. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so you show up there and you're talking about defense. You've got this motion offense. It's not a 
It wasn't a high-flying offense. This wasn't something where the scoreboards lighten up like a pinball machine. But in year two, in March of 73, you end up in the Final Four. I mean, year two, you've got this Big Ten school, and you're still a young guy in the Final Four, and you face the great UCLA Bruins and John Wooden. Well, uh, I've never been a Wooden fan. You know, I... Uh, now, that's like almost heresy. And not to me, it isn't. You know, Wooden had a guy named Sam Gilbert. Are you familiar with that name? Yes. I'm glad you are. I am. And, and He kind of did the dirty work. Not kind of. Okay. Uh, Sam Gilbert was the number one recruiter for UCLA. Uh, I have a lot of respect for Wooden as a coach, how he coached. He was a good coach. But from then on, I, I, and I don't mind saying it, I, I don't respect Wooden because he allowed Sam Gilbert to do whatever it took to recruit kids. And one time he told me, he said, I just didn't know how to deal with Sam Gilbert. And I'm saying to myself, well, I damn sure could have should have dealt with him. And personally, I like John, you know, as a person. Uh, but but the whole UCLA, it isn't just John, it's a whole UCLA approach to recruiting. Uh, I, I think that, uh, that John was called in and told he didn't have to worry about recruiting, that they had people that would take care of that for him. And, and that's, not, that's coming from people that really know the circumstances. So for you to get to that position in year two in the Final Four is a tremendous accomplishment considering where Indiana was before you showed up. I mean, you, that, that's got to be, of all the things that you've accomplished in your career, I mean, getting that program propped up in such a short amount of time is well, incredible. Well, I'll tell you, uh, it, it could not have even come close to being done without the players that I inherited. And it, it, it may have taken a little while, a year or so, to get them to play the way I wanted to. But you had Joby Wright and Steve Downing, and, and I could go on and on with those kids that I inherited. And, and I was always really, uh, really fond of those kids because they had to accept a different way of playing. It, it wasn't winning 98 to 96. It wasn't run and gun. It was, hey, let's stop people from scoring. Was it a tough sell to the fans at no, first? No, I mean, they were, they're used to 150 to 149 or something. I mean, yeah, and now sure. Now you're was, talking about defense. It was a, it was a tough thing. I mean, uh, but, you know, uh, uh, winning supplants a lot of things that are good. And, and uh, I think in, uh, in this situation, it was like, well, we're winning. In 1975, you guys are undefeated going into the tournament. You rank number one, you get to the elite eight, and Kentucky takes you down. Yes. What 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 did that loss do to you, to the team? Well, you know, we were the best team in the country basically throughout the course of the year, and we happened to get beat. And and uh, when we lost a game, now now there were some games that I did hesitate to tell our team we got beat by a better team tonight. That, that's why, am I right in saying there are some times that you would lose and you'd be okay with the effort and the execution as opposed to sometimes you might win and not execute, 
not give the effort that you were looking for and be more upset than you were losing a game. You know, that's you're absolutely right. I never took uh, a sloppy win for granted. You know, I, I was as uh, irritated by a sloppy win as I was for a loss. I didn't think there was much difference except on the scores table. You know, you've won one more game, but but I my whole my whole point was as a coach with any team that I ever coached was here's what I believe you can do. I don't care what you think you can do or what your parents think you can do. Here is what I think you can do. And if you'll do this, we're going to win. And that's been pretty much the way that uh, it's gone throughout my career in coaching. What does a national championship mean to you? I mean, you'd been there as a player. You had seen it at Ohio State. You'd also been there and lost it at Ohio State. You had this great team in 75 leading into 76. What, it's got to be so close you can just feel it. College basketball is, is one of the great things. It, hopefully, and I'm not sure this is the case, but hopefully you're mostly dealing with students or kids who want to graduate. You know, that's what I wanted. I mean, you think of them first as students more than your players. They're, they're students. Whether it was your mom's influences, your second grade teacher, you thought of yourself, and I'm sure you still do to some degree, as a teacher, right? Well, let's put it this way. I thought, I thought that I had two things uh, that I was responsible for as a coach. Number one, and most important, was that the kids that played would get a degree. The kids that played would have an opportunity to get into the world. And, and, and that was, I think, uh, more important than winning games. And that was awfully important. But I thought that my responsibility above all else was to see that in the process of playing, they had an opportunity to play and, and win games, but also they conducted themselves academically in a way that they'd be able to go out and work. So in 1976, you have this special season, you have this unbelievable team, you're undefeated, and you end up in the national championship game. You're down by six at the half to Michigan. What did you say to that group you don't want to hear what I said. No, yeah, I do. No, you don't. <laughs> yeah. My mother would Listen be em- you. my mother would be embarrassed. <laughs> so no. you lit them up at halftime. No, I went in. And no. I, 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 I said I said, you know, you guys ought to be grateful that we're playing for 40 minutes. And I said, because we've got 20 minutes left to win this game. I said, how many of you think we've played well? You know, just like this, nobody wants to, because they knew we didn't play very well. And Michigan played well in the first half. And I said, if you'll listen, we're going to win this game. And I said, if you don't, we're going to get our ass beat. It's that simple. You've got two choices here. So I remember that I didn't scream and raise hell and and chew guys out. Now, I've done that on occasion. I've been that route probably maybe a few times too often, but I went in and I was explained very quietly what we had to do. Indiana opens a half, six points down. Over to Ken Benson underneath. He got a lucky rebound on that. Hubbard's shot no good. Scott May up there for the rebound. 
Oh, God, Kent Benson, Scott May inside, and we've got a tie game. And now Indiana's taking control. One has made a Benson. He's got it. Ten-point lead into Abernathy. It's interesting. Michigan has not had one fast-break field goal the second half. Down to Wayne Rathbone. One second. What son of a bitch should have called a foul right <laughs> there? <laughs> Tremendous second half is the national champion. 86-68, I think it said at the end. 16 points. How'd that feel? How did that feel to win it all? Well, it wasn't, it wasn't, really, it wasn't that we won it all. And I told them after the game, I said, you know, you should be really proud. And I am proud uh, to have coached you, but you should, you should be very proud yourselves. And, and what you should take the most pride is that you overcame less than good play in the first half. And you gave everything you had, not just to squeeze by a team, but to use your abilities to the full extent that you had in beating Michigan here today. And that's been the way it was. It hasn't happened since. Nope. It has not happened since. An undefeated season nope. and so then you go through a stretch where you have to try to rebuild all of this right I mean that's it, that's the nature of college basketball you have these this group that, that comes along and then eventually they're gone and you have to kind of start back over uh, and and rebuild this you know the core of your team in 79 you you hear about a kid named Isaiah Thomas I, I had a tremendous respect from this kid that that came out of a tough background and he wanted the discipline that you were going to provide. his sister was key his sister ruby was as good a gal as there ever was and nobody ever had a better sister than ruby and and uh that that led him to come to 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 uh to bloomington tell me about coaching against dean smith in the ncaa tournament probably everybody just about in here Maybe some of you aren't, but uh, most everybody in here was alive when Reagan was shot. And, and uh, this was right during the Final Four. It was right before the championship game, two days before, I think. And, and, uh, was there we, a question as to whether you would play? Not Dean and I. You know, it was a hierarchy. But we went to them, and we said that it would be wrong for us not to play. I said Reagan wouldn't like that. I said, Reagan plays to win. And, and he would not like us not to play. He would expect that we would both want our kids to go out there and play like hell. From the spectrum in Philadelphia, it's Indiana's Hoosiers against the Tar Heels of North Carolina. For those of you who may not have heard, there was an assassination attempt, an attempt on the life of President Reagan today in Washington. We ask thy special blessing on the President of the United States, Ronald Reagan. Amen. Despite the fact they've not been scoring, Isaiah Thomas has his first hoop. Thomas again. Can't stop him. Carolina having a devil of a time getting the ball in. Blocked by Tolbert. The little things are all adding up and going to Indiana. Inside to Turner. Nice touch. 63 to 50. Isaiah Thomas, when it comes down, Indiana will be champions. Bobby Knight joined only six other coaches to win this championship more than once. That, that game was 
that game was was basically over with at the start of the second half. We came out and played really, really well. Isaiah Thomas got two quick buckets, and anyhow, we played as well as a team could play and ended up ended up winning that. And that may be the best game there ever was. And and I think it was a real tribute to Reagan that kids felt that way and gave it everything they had, both the Carolina kids and our kids. It was three years later that you end up coaching the USA basketball team in the Olympics right here in Los Angeles in 1984. Coaching Team USA had to be as important to you as any coaching assignment you could have ever undertaken. Well, I think more than anything else, I wanted to do that, number one. And number two, more than anything else, I wanted to coach an Olympic team that won the gold medal. Okay, so you're playing for the gold medal. What did you tell your team at halftime? Wait till everybody gets seated. So I walk in and I've, all of a sudden it hits on what I'm going to do. <clears throat> Michael Jordan sitting over here. I walk over here. Uh-oh. No, that's okay. I'm not no. going to go any further. I walk over here and I say, now, Mike, I said, you know how important screening is to us. And damn it, you haven't set a screen out there yet. <laughs> you know, and, and I'm, I'm trying to get us in shape to play the second half. And I say, you haven't set a screen yet. Only Jordan could say this. He said, coach, I read somewhere not long ago where where you were talking about me being the, the quickest player of my size that you've ever been around. I said, what the hell has that got to do with screening, Mike? <laughs> and he looks up at me and he says, coach, I think I'm setting them quicker than you can see them out there. <laughs> That's verbatim. I mean, you gotta love a kid like that. But the coach can never lose. So there are three kids sitting here. So I walk over. There are two kids sitting there. So I walk over and they're laughing, you know, about Mike's comment to me, you know. Right. And I said, all right. I said, you two guys thought this was really funny. I said, well, I'm going to tell you about how funny it is because you two are in charge of Jordan for the second half. And if he doesn't set four screens in the first five minutes of the second half, I'm taking you two some of bitches out of the game. <laughs> I turned around and walked away. Coach always has to win somehow. I don't care how. Steal, cheat, lie, whatever. Coach got to win in these circumstances. You know, I said, Mike, I said, I want this game over with with four minutes to play in the game. I want it completely over with. So Mike on his own with about, I think it was seven minutes to go in the game, calls timeout. So I'm wondering, what the hell is this all about? Michael calling timeout. So we get in a huddle and Mike comes in puts his arm around my shoulders. Remember, I told him I wanted this over with with four minutes to go. Mike puts his arm around my shoulders. He says, coach, take a look at the time clock. 
we're seven minutes ahead of schedule out here. <laughs> is that, is that unbelievable? <laughs> Let's take a look at the end of the gold medal game. Now, of course, Coach Knight taking 12 players from 10 different systems into the corner. Birkin back over to Michael Jordan off the glass door. Lopez loses the ball to Jordan. Two on one. Oh. <laughs> How about that one? And the final score, the United States 96 and Spain 65. You know, the neatest thing that, and, and I hope, I, I, I hope you all enjoy this, but, but the neatest thing with, with what Joe just turned on up here, the neatest thing was the smile on the faces of those kids. That was, that was really something. Did you, did you ever get a sniff? from the NBA. I mean, did they, I mean they, they have to look at the success. You've won two national championships. You just won a gold medal. You're, you're molder of men. And, and did they ever come calling the NBA? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how many chances. <laughs> you know, I had a lot of chances. Uh, but but uh, why, why did you never take the jump? Well, you know, uh, I like dealing with kids. Uh, and and uh, I, I thought I had something to, uh, I, I thought I was doing something more than for me when I coached. I, I'm really pleased that I can look back over the years that I coached and the kids that I coached knowing that these kids all got a degree. And that's second. They won a lot of games, but, but more important to me was that when they were through with us, they went away with an education. In 1985, this has a funny ending. I got to Indiana in 1987. Not that you care. <laughs> I know were, you were, don't. Was that your seventh year there? <laughs> that was, yeah. That was my, uh, I was, you know, taking time for me. I, no, actually, I, I actually think you did well. You know, I, I did fine at Indiana. But I noticed at the end of one of the games, I mean, I was a diehard fan. But at the end of one of the games, the gym had cleared out, the arena cleared out, and the managers from the team were tearing down the bench area. And the chairs in the bench area had a chain that went through multiple legs of multiple chairs. Because in 1985, you're playing Purdue and something doesn't go right you're upset and a chair goes whizzing across well, the court. Sure, but I mean, the whole thing there was, there was a lady over on the other side of the floor that I happened to glance over there and she didn't have a chair. Oh. And she reminded me of my grandmother and I just threw it over to her. Okay. All right. I'll let that. I'll let that go. That that can be the answer. You threw a chair to a lady. Okay. All right. 
So as I mentioned, I get to... I, but but let, let me interrupt you with this, the, yeah. the comic part of it. I never understood, you know, I mean, basketball games have towels thrown, chairs, and, and the press, uh, you have an idea as to the feelings about my intellectual relationship with most of the press yeah. when I was coaching. And, and to make a gigantic issue out of me sliding a chair across the floor just didn't seem to make any sense to me at all. How about, how about the time you pulled a starter's pistol out and like a writer that you didn't like in the hallway, you pulled the trigger on the starter's pistol and, and that was, hey, hey, that was funny. Well, the only thing that I regretted was that I didn't load the pistol. You, I would say you had, is it fair to say, a love-hate relationship with the media? Because there were times where you were very playful with the media and you well, made them laugh and you were... There were, there, were people, there were people that I liked, you know, people that didn't make a mountain out of a molehill somewhere along the way. And I think that... Uh, uh, by and large, uh, I, I, I like to needle the writers a little bit. Well, yeah, you did. It, it was fun. It was fun for us well, on the outside but to I'm watch. But I'm sure that, that uh, I probably got carried away on occasion. Uh, all right. I just want to play this. It's another time with, with you having fun with the media. I, I love this clip. If I could determine what the hell he's going to look like next year, that's just what I'm... I have no idea. i got to wait till next year to watch him play. I mean, I can't do that. You know, you would anticipate, wait, right? Wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> I see Bailey being better. Do you see him being the playmaker for next year's team? <laughs> wait a minute, there's something forming here. Forming? It says... What a question. I mean, in a, room, in a room full of people, they just broke up at that line. That was funny. You got you to gotta like that one. Were you proud of that one? I thought it was, I thought it was pretty good. Yeah. Um, but but there's, a, there's another year in here that needs to be talked about, and that's March of 87. This great Indiana team, Steve Alford, Keith Smart, guys that you had, uh, you're going for your third national championship, and you're playing a really good Syracuse team that was loaded at the time. You were number one, they were number two. You're in the finals. Hey, let's watch the last 28 seconds. Syracuse 73, Indiana 72, with Syracuse coming up to the free throw line. He's short. Indiana can win it. And he decided to put Douglas on offer. And they go man to man. Takes the shot, oh, and the Hoosiers with three seconds. Here it goes. Indiana wins.
wins the championship. Keith Smart is the hero. There's Bobby Knight moving on into history. I, I didn't have I didn't have anything to do with that, you know. You did have. Don't say you didn't have anything no, no, to do listen, with that. Listen, listen, you writers always over. I'm not a writer. Sometimes. I mean, <laughs> so. But anyhow, think about those two kids that kept alternating, come inside, and kept move, and they kept. Tr everybody had to look at them, and then all of a sudden there was that opening, and 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 I say to those two kids. It, the, Keith gets all the credit in the world for making the bucket that wins the game. But those two kids made it possible by okay. working to be alive. And, but you, you'll, you'll notice that time's running out, and one of the two kids did receive a pass. But before going up with the shot, he recognized how open Keith was. And for those two kids to do that, uh, that to me remains in my mind for 40 years that I coached. It was the smartest play I ever saw. You could have called timeout, but you didn't. This team was so prepared and so ready that you let the you let them play on. You knew that they were in a position because of the makeup of that team. A guy like Steve Alford well, doing but, what he does. But, but we weren't when with that much time to go. We were in no way in charge of the game. And, and I've never uh, been associated with any particular play or any sport uh, that I thought more of being an example for playing under pressure than those three kids. Here, 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 national champions. Maybe this is a good time to bring up this quote that's on the wall that says, attributed to you. Most people have the will to win, but very few have the will to prepare to win. Is that what's on the wall? That's what's on the wall. <laughs> you got it right. You get an A. You get an A+. Plus. Uh, tell me, tell me, I mean, I, I think it's pretty obvious, but, but that's obviously right front of mind for well, you. If you want to do something, I don't care what it is, you better figure out how to win. You know, whatever it is. You know, you've got to, you know, you, you, you've got a kid that's a pain in the ass. Well, you've got to figure out how to win for that kid, you know, and, and I think that's, that's what winning is all about. Winning is not a sometime thing. It's an all the time thing. And, and you don't win once in a while. You've got to figure out how to win all the time. And, and that to me uh, is the most important thing almost about life. But to, to do it the right way. To do it the right way, to, to win within whatever the rules dictate. I can't tell you how many times people have asked me, you know, whatever I coach 40 years or 42 years, you know, I'll be asked and say, Coach, uh, what did you like best about coaching? What, what did I say? Winning. That's it. That's the only word I used. I said, Coach, uh, what did you like best about coaching? I said, Winning. <laughs> and the guys had shaked it, but that's what I like best about coaching. So we need to talk about the end at Indiana. You said when you left, you should have left five years earlier. There were some real assholes at Indiana <laughs> when I was there. Do I need to go any further with no, my I'm... thinking there? It had gotten to the point where where there were people I just didn't like, and there were people that didn't like me. 
And I think basically that people resented how important Indiana basketball was to the university. I have a tremendous feeling for the people of Indiana that they were the best fans, the best sports people, the best people at a game. They never booed the other team. They never, they were great. You didn't get a chance to leave on your own terms. CNN in 2000 has this report about you choking a player, Neil Reed, <laughs> during practice. This is an opportunity to, to talk about that. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna talk about it because I'm sure that one time or another, I grabbed a lot of kids. I just missed a few times grabbing a couple referees. But I never had to hesitate to a kid we've worked with and worked with and worked with, and he goes against. I might say, God damn it, Jimmy, you've got to block out. And I've got him by one arm, and then I've showed him how to block out. You know, so that was ridiculous, anything like that to use as an example. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Did, did society change during the course of time? Because we've talked about... No, I think people changed there. There are enough people changed there that were tired of basketball of being the guiding light of the university. And I won't go in any other direction. So that, that incident happens, and then some student walks up to you on campus and says, Hey, Knight, what's up? Or whatever he said in the that most disrespectful big, way. That was a big part of it. That was it. That was that led to my being fired. That, that was the end right there. That was a huge part of it. Some kid came up to me and say, hey, Knight, what's going on? That kid made a dumb mistake. You know, I went over to that kid and I did a lot more for the son of a bitch than his parents ever did for him. <laughs> and I went over there and I said, son, let me tell you something. You don't address adults like that under any circumstances. And that's why I have no use for Indiana University because they used that as a reason to get me out of there and that's absolute bullshit. Is, is there anything, is there anything about bullshit that you don't understand? No. Good. It's a good word. Um, do you think that ever gets repaired? I mean, you're, you're so loved in Bloomington. You're so loved in that state. I mean, you three-time national championships and, and three-time national champions. Do you, is there any way, is there anything you could see happening that brings you back to that campus and, and ends on, on the right note? Well, I, I've been asked a lot of times uh, to do things in Indiana, uh, which I've always done. And, and they are things that don't involve Indiana University. And, and I operate in that way simply because among all those people that have, uh, that have cheered those teams on, rooted for those kids, uh, they're something that I will, uh, those fans will be people that I'll treasure the rest of my life. You go to Texas Tech, you're there for, you sign a five-year deal, you, br you, bring, what, you bring players from eight different schools, you make the NCAA tournament right out of the gate, which shows what you can do as a head coach, but you end up with 902 victories, most all time. And then of all people to break your record, the young man you brought to West Point, Mike Krzyzewski at Duke, 
and you are there for ESPN broadcasting the game at Cameron Indoor Arena when Coach K has a chance to break your all-time wins record. Fans on their feet. They're sensing something special. Rebound captured by Curry. The final two seconds, one second, nine three is in the books. History is made. Mike Krzyzewski now stands alone at the top of the mountain. I just told him, I said, Coach, you, I'm not sure people tell you this, but I love you. Uh, he says, uh, boy, you've done pretty good for a kid who couldn't shoot. Here's how that happened uh, with me. Uh, Roger Bannister was the first guy to run the four-minute mile. And today, years and years later, he's still the first guy to run a four-minute mile. And a lot of guys won after Roger Bannister. And a lot of guys will win after uh, the basketball record that, uh, that our team set. But they will always be, and I'll always be, the first coach to win that many games. I mean, how many games I could have won if I'd have wanted to go on? Who knows? Before we wrap this up, I want to ask you what's next. What, what, what's next for you? What are you, what are you doing well, I, I think it'd be nice if I kind of went around and helped you uh, <laughs> as, as you go along. Work, okay. on, work on your vocabulary okay. a little bit and work on... Uh, I like I it. Mean, <laughs> no, I, uh, I, I don't pay as much attention to, to, uh, to basketball probably as I, I, I should have. I, uh, you know, I'm afraid that if I start watching a lot of basketball, you know, I... I start saying, well, they shouldn't be doing that or they shouldn't be doing this. or, And, and I never wanted to, once I had quit coaching, I, I just made up my mind then that I don't ever want to start in again. Karen and I have spent a lot of time in Montana. We go fishing a lot. And, and uh, so life's been good to both of us. Here's how we end this thing. I'm going to pick. Just kind of just indulge me on this, please. Would you rather have nosy neighbors or noisy neighbors? Well, given a choice, I'd be happy to have none. <laughs> Fair enough. Would you rather be caught singing in the shower or crying at the movies? Well, if the water was hot, I'd rather be taking a shower. Okay. Are you a singer in the shower? With this voice? Yes. About the only thing I sing is, hey, Karen, where the hell is the soap? Okay. That's about my music in the shower. Would you rather have a rewind button or a pause button on your life? I would hope that each and every one of us does have a rewind button. And by that, I mean something that we didn't do that we could have done or should have done to make life better for somebody else. I'd be glad to rewind if I could do that. Ladies and gentlemen, this guy who grew up in Orville, Ohio, who was a baseball player at heart, but then took the basketball, played at Ohio State, went on to West Point, went on to Indiana, went on to Texas Tech, coached an Olympic team to a gold medal in 1984, 
simply one of the greatest to ever coach in the history of the game of basketball, Bobby Knight. Coaches, that was so enlightening. I hope you found it beneficial to you. So let me share with you three takeaways to think about. So here's the first one. Bobby Knight makes his players always be reading a book. His mom and grandmother were really smart, and his mom gave him the gift of reading, and he instilled this in his players. He requires that they each have a book that they are reading at all times, especially during road trips. And if Bobby didn't like the book the player was reading, <laughs> as you might imagine, he'd make the player read another book. How smart is that? Is this something that makes sense for your team? Bobby was big on biographies of sports figures. So many life lessons that young players could learn from. And think about this. I was reading where I think like 30% of the adult population after they graduate from college never read another book the rest of their life. I know it sounds unbelievable, but I think this is a huge opportunity for you to instill this, this desire to learn, to always be growing in your players by requiring them to read books that you approve of. Think about that. And here's the second takeaway. The will to win is the most important thing in coaching, an unrelenting focus on winning. And if it's really important to you, you'll figure out how to win. That was Bobby Knight's simple philosophy, and he believed that you had to be tough to win, tough to win. So he recruited tough-minded players and made his practices tough, really harder than the games, both mentally and physically. And here's the third takeaway. Most people have the will to win, but don't have the will to prepare. The hallmark trait of Bobby Knight teams was being well prepared. And Bobby saw that winning happened before the games. The process during practice is what caused the teams to win games. So he was all about the process. And here's the action step. Two things to consider. First, what do you think about that idea of requiring your players to always be reading a book on road trips and reading books that you approve of? Keep in mind, you probably have more perspective of what they need to learn than they do. So that's the value of trusting your judgment more so than their judgment. And here's the second idea. Bobby Knight says the will to win is the most important thing in coaching. Can you increase the will to win in your players? I think you can by talking about it, by talking about the joy of winning and all the benefits that come from winning and also the impact of winning on them later in life. And by talking about the pain of losing, it's from discussions that you can make your players increase their desire to win. As you put your head on the pillow tonight, just think about that idea of increasing your players' desire to win and the possibility of doing that for more discussions about it. Until next time, hook them. <laughs>